Uh, well, we've been watching the uh, Auckland deluge uh, and regions around it over the recent days. 245 millimetres of rain in one day. A tenth of that would be a very wet day for us. Uh, rain came heavy, it came quick, it overwhelmed storm drains, uh, significant flooding, even death. Uh, but alongside that deluge was the response of emergency services, civil defence, city council. Now, I haven't followed all the details closely, but, but there have been complaints, accusations made about the preparations beforehand and communications during the process. And the mayor has responded by promising an independent review. When things go wrong, there is a review. Christchurch has a massive earthquake and buildings collapsed. There is a royal commission. Children are abused in state care over decades. There's an inquiry. When someone dies in unusual circumstances, there's an inquest. In the business world, when a, a product fails to meet expectations, there is a report generated. When there's a disaster, there's an inquiry. Uh, When there is a calamity, there is an investigation. When things go wrong, there is a review. And the question is asked, what happened? Well, why has this tragedy unfolded? As we look back with the perspective of hindsight, what should we have done differently? What lessons should be learned? How will things be different going forward? Well, one and two kings is a review, an inquiry, an investigation into what went wrong. Uh, The author is sitting with Israelites in exile, in Babylon. Israel has been defeated. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple of God has been demolished. The people of God have been decimated. What went wrong? They had such great promise, such great hope. One Kings opens with King David in Israel. The coffers are full. The nation is powerful and feared and mighty. When you get to the end of two Kings, it closes with Jehoiachin, king of Judah, as an exile sitting at the table of the king of Babylon. What went wrong? Now, the book of, books of one or two kings, they're actually one single work. Uh, it is the book of kings. The break is, apparently, because scrolls could only be so big, and this review went across at least two scrolls. Now, 47 chapters sounds like a lot of material, but this is an inquiry covering more than 400 years of history. So, there's a lot of ground to cover, But actually, our author is very selective, very particular, very focused in the material that is included. And there are lessons for the people of God to learn back then and for us here and now. Now, if you're like me, uh, one in two kings is largely unfamiliar. A few hero stories, you know, Elijah, Elisha, a few miracles, a few Sunday school favorites, Solomon... But mostly it seems like a boring catalogue of unpronounceable names and a list of obscure Israelite kings, most of whom are described as corrupt or evil. Nevertheless, let me remind you that behind the human author is God and his agenda. He also has lessons to teach his people 
through the history of Israel. Lessons about us and lessons about God. Uh, What we have in the book of Kings is theology, that is, truth about God, but it's communicated through an account of historical events, or as we see in chapters 1 and 2, particularly historical characters. It's the people who tell the story. And as we'll see, the the culture might be 3,000 years old, but people are people. The people we'll read about, they aren't really that different to us. Uh, We hold on to uh, similar sorts of promises and pledges from God. We face the same sorts of political or social or family struggles and trials. We endure the same sorts of character flaws and personal faults. Their story is our story. This isn't merely ancient history. This is God's contemporary word to Hastings Baptist Church. Now, as beginnings go, you'd have to say 1 Kings chapter 1, it's not the most riveting. It doesn't start with skyrockets, it starts with a squib. As Israel's king gets old, grows frail, and dies. It isn't the sort of passage that I'd rush to as we launch out into the new year. It doesn't sort of set us up with a bold call to action and dedication to gospel work for 2023. What a flat start to a book. Bad circulation and cold feet. Uh, This part of the Bible is messy and disappointing, frustratingly ambiguous, It's not particularly inspirational. There aren't obvious moral lessons that jump out of the passage. It's dark. It's worrying. It's real. That's why we're looking at it this morning. See, we live in a world where the unpleasant realities of frail bodies and dying people, let's push to the margins. In case you missed it, human life is fundamentally tragic. Death remains as a stubborn, omnipresent, inevitable reality. But our culture pretends not to notice. Why should we read parts of the Bible like this? Because this is our world. This is my world. This is your world. Sooner or later, the, the messy reality of life will seep into our experience. That's why it pays to be ready. That's why we need this part of the Bible to to shape the way we think and feel and act as we live in a world where 100% of people will die. The whole book of Kings is written for the real world, our world, the world which, which we are called to live in and be godly. And where does it start? It starts off in a really bizarre place. The book starts off in bed. The book opens with something as humdrum as poor blood flow and cold toes. Chapter 1, verse 1, when King David was very old, he could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. This chapter is full of references to the king. It's the king, the king, the king, the king. But the sight of this king is rather pathetic. This great king, the vigorous man who fought the nation's battles, the legend who built the kingdom, the red-blooded man who struggle to keep his libido in check, has come to the stage in life where even the gorgeous young virgin put in bed with him is only interesting to him as a human hot water bottle. 
Verse 2, his attendants said to him, let's look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord, the king, may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. Uh, This is supposed to be sad. David is a shadow of his former self. Uh, Every year there's a collection of famous actors and actresses who've died over the last 12 months and they're kind of sort of catalogued for us. And because of their acting work is preserved in film, we can see them in their youth and their prime with passion and enthusiasm. You know, action men performing stunts, beautiful women filling the screens. But then when you see them near death, wheeled out to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award, attend some gala, and they are frail and they are withered. They're just a whisper of their former selves. Now, if you went back and read through 1 and 2 Samuel, you'd see David, the young shepherd boy who killed lions and bears and fought Goliath, the giant soldier. You'd see David, the leader of warriors, the fighter's fighting man. But you'd also see that David's lusts got the better of him. He engineered the death of Bathsheba, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And from then on, we see this moral slide. The giant slayer isn't so quick to say the battle belongs to the Lord. The instinctive leader isn't quite so decisive. The man after God's own heart isn't quite so focused on honouring the Lord. In fact, spiritually speaking, that event marks downhill all the way. King David, who'd been told by the Lord himself back in 2 Samuel 7, that one of his sons would rule on his throne forever. Here we find in 1 Kings, we see David, he doesn't really seem to care who succeeds him as king anymore. How shocking. I mean, he... He has a very personal and amazing promise from God to him about his descendants. He doesn't seem to care that much about the promise from the Lord. David is presented as a hopeless figure. He's asleep in bed, having his feet warmed by Abishag, while everything around him is falling apart. And in the political vacuum, verse 5, one of David's sons puts his hand up and says, Pick me, pick me, I'll be king. Uh, Up to this point, you don't get to choose to be king. But that doesn't stop Adonijah. Perhaps no one's told him. He gets some horses and some chariots, make himself look impressive. He recruits some key allies. He arranges a coronation party. What's David doing while all this is happening? He's in bed with his human hot water bottle. Now Bathsheba, who's hardly appeared since uh, giving birth to Solomon, and Nathan, the veteran prophet... They turn up to sort out this mess, verse 11. What's going on here? What are we, we've got to do something. Eventually, David speaks, verse 16. What do you want? Now, this is the king who should be leading and commanding and directive and proactive, but he's dozing. He's doing nothing. He's reactive. It's Bathsheba and Nathan who are trying to stop the kingdom from going down the gurgler. That's not good. They have to stir David into action. And finally, verse 28, he gets his act together. He calls for Bathsheba. Verse 29, the king took an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, 
who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he'll sit on my throne in my place. We get a glimpse of David of old. David acts. Solomon is installed as king. Crisis averted. But that's not the note on which this section ends. Uh, Look with me at at chapter 2. Uh, David gets out of bed to give his son and his heir a a final motivation talk. His advice comes in two parts. Part 1, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go. And and that the Lord may keep his promise to me if your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. This is brilliant stuff. This is vintage Deuteronomy from David. Thumbs up for this bit. But but then look at what happens next. Part two of David's advice. Verses five through nine. Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me. What he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jephthah. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if, as if in battle. And with that blood, he stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Manon. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now, do not consider him innocent. You're a man of wisdom. You'll know what to do with him. Bring his grey head down to the grave in blood. Then David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. Verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, inspiring godly challenge. Echoes of Joshua 1, the words of Moses in Deuteronomy, picks up the promise from 2 Samuel 7 about the line of David. But what's striking is what comes next. He tells Solomon to do his dirty work. Deal with the henchmen that he'd used throughout his life, but didn't have the guts to discipline when they stepped out of line. Settle a few old debts for him. Clean up his mess to act with wisdom doesn't seem to have much to do with God's wisdom. It's all a bit grubby and sad. There were hard calls that David had wimped out on, political messes that he'd created but not cleaned up, dangerous situations he'd eased but not resolved. And now he tells Solomon to act with wisdom, get rid of all my enemies. What's our impression of David? as we look across these two chapters. King David, as he's repeatedly called. 
It's a picture of a man who fails to finish well. David had everything going for him. But after the Bathsheba incident, he's never quite the same again. And here we meet him, a shell of the man he used to be. I was still capable of moments of great clarity and great leadership, but basically a guy who's run downhill. At one level, these two chapters are a very simple challenge to people like you and me. Finish well. Start well. Live well. Finish well. Now, that might sound strange to some of you who are young. Uh, Your life is just getting started. The future lies out before you. But let me encourage you to set yourself up for the long haul. The greatest achievement in life is simply to keep going with Jesus. The longer I live, the more I see people who started the Christian life with excitement and enthusiasm, but then they eventually peter out and walk away. Our university friends who were so evangelistic, they start work, they earn money, they travel, they get married, they have some kids, they settle down, and somewhere in all that process, they... They stop going to church and they stop being Christian. I've been here at HBC for more than two decades. A number of saints have left us through the movements of life or death. But far too many have just left us, ultimately gone nowhere. The Apostle Paul says, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Let me tell you that, tragically, it's quite possible for my body to be wasting away and for my Christian spirituality to equally be wasting away. A retirement and old age are no guarantee that you will finish well for Jesus. There's no greater achievement in life than to remain a faithful follower of Jesus all the way to the very end, to finish well. Aim to be like the Apostle Paul who says, the time for my death is near, I fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finishing well is hugely underrated and David didn't do it. What about Adonijah? The man who wanted to be king and who would make himself one. Up to this point in time, kings are always appointed by the Lord. It's not something you kind of volunteer for. Adonijah is David's oldest living son and he models himself on his rebellious older brother, Absalom, who tried himself to become king. Absalom had chariots and runners before him, so Adonijah has chariots and runners. Adonijah gets David's hitman on side, the one who killed his older brother. He gets Joab on side. Joab seems to be a very hard man. He probably despised the weakness, the inaction of David. So he signs up with Adonijah. And the other leaders, well, they think David's time is over, so they sign up as well. But Adonijah's not stupid. He, he knows who not to talk to, verse 8. So verse 9, he picks his spot throws himself a coronation party. Uh, But when he hears the trumpet blast, verse 41, the party is over. 
Adonijah is reduced to clinging to the altar for protection. Solomon promises to go easy on his presumptuous half-brother. All is well until chapter 2, verse 13. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, went to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. Bathsheba asked him, do you come peacefully? He answered, yes, peacefully, liar. Then he added, I have something to say to you. You may say it, she replied. As you know, he said, the kingdom was mine. All Israel looked to me as their king, but things changed. The kingdom's gone to my brother, for it's come to him from the Lord. Now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. You may make it, she said. So he continued, please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite, the human hot water bottle, as my wife. Adonijah knew exactly what he was doing. He's making another bid for leadership. See, when uh, when you conquered another king in the ancient world, you took over his wives and his harem. That, that says that what you are, that you are king. Look, I'm king. I've got all the old king's wives plus all my own new ones. Adonijah knew it. Bathsheba knew it. She's no fool. Sure. I'll pass on your message to Solomon. We'll see what happens then. Pretty soon Solomon knows it. This is not a very subtle attempt to overthrow the new king. And Adonijah pays a huge price for his pride. Chapter 2, verse 25, he's executed. If David warns us that it's tough to keep going to the end and to finish well in our Christian lives, Adonijah warns us of the danger of self-promotion of pride of thinking more of ourselves than we are his life is a tragic warning about the sin of pride he he would not be put off i will be king that's why adonijah's story is there for us what about bathsheba and nathan what are we to make of them see they they see that david has lost the plot and apparently has lost all interest in the promises that God would put one of his sons on the throne. So what do they do? They do what it takes. Uh, Interestingly, the author tells us nothing about their motives. Are they acting to serve God's honour? We don't know. Are they acting for self-protection? We don't know. We, We don't know what their motivation is, but they do what has to be done. There's nothing here to suggest that they prayed about their actions or sought to know God's will or his word. No explicit statement that what they have done, they did to honour and bring glory to God. But the net result of their actions, chapter 2, verse 12, and chapter 2, verse 46, Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his rule was firmly established. The key movement of these chapters is that God kept his promise, and he did it by putting Solomon on David's throne in fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. But it wouldn't have happened without Nathan and Bathsheba taking matters into their own hands. Is God in control? Yes, absolutely. But he works through the planning, even the plotting of Nathan and Bathsheba, who see what has to be done and get on with it. See, in our world, it's so often not clear what should or shouldn't be done. God's will isn't completely transparent to us. 
What should we do? Sometimes we just have to get on with it. Like Nehemiah, we pray for protection and we post a guard. Like Paul, has a vision. Seemed good to the Holy Spirit to us. And they got in a boat and they went. They did what had to be done. Well, like Nathan and Bathsheba, we need to do what's right for the kingdom. Our God is sovereign, not only when we pray or when we've thought through every possible consequence of our actions or, or even when we've consulted all the godly people we know, God is always sovereign. That should free us up to act, knowing that he can and will take and use, reshape and redirect our actions. Uh, life is complex. The fact that God is in control should set us free to act r- rather than spend all our lives examining our motives, trying to ensure that they're pure all the time. Sometimes we just have to get on with it. One more character in these chapters, uh, Solomon. What are we to make of Solomon? Well, the reports of Solomon's actions in chapter 2 highlights the temptation to just do our own thing, to do things our own way. Yes, it's important to act, but it's important to act in a godly way. Now, David's words to Solomon, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and 5 to 9, set up a kind of disturbing tension. See, firstly, he tells Solomon, be a godly king. He tells him, do seven great things from Deuteronomy. He wants Solomon to remember the promise of 2 Samuel 7. Then he tells him to be wise, not in the sense of fearing God, but in the sense of making himself a man to be feared by killing off David's old enemies, which is then what he goes and does in the rest of chapter 2. Is this really the perfect king who's promised in 2 Samuel 7, whose first act is to kill off all the old enemies. This looks worse, not better. This looks like political self-interest. The basic question that Solomon, uh, the wise, faces as he becomes king is, do I do things God's way or my way? And the fact that chapter 2 is full of intrigue and bloodshed doesn't bode well. Like all of us, Solomon is confronted with doing the will of the Lord or pursuing self-interest and pragmatism. And right at the start of this book, Solomon gives in. See, after David, we're looking for a king who succeeds where he failed, who a king who pushes on from his father, a king who builds on his father's good qualities. But what do we find? In these strange chapters, we find that, yes, the kingdom is established, but it happens through an old king who finishes badly, a pretender who's all about self-promotion, a couple who are determined to just get the job done, and a new king who seems to value pragmatism over godliness. It's messy. It's ambiguous. It's shades of grey. But this is our world. Do you recognise it? See, why are these chapters in the Bible? What are they doing? Why does this book start the way it does with old age and deception and bloodshed and pragmatism? 
because that's what life's like. Our world is not simple. It's not clear-cut. Ultimately, these chapters are about Jesus. God made extravagant promises about the king who would come from David's family, a perfect, permanent king who certainly wasn't going to be David. I mean, David couldn't even hand over the crown properly. And we know already in these opening chapters that no matter how spectacular Solomon is going to be with the rest of his life, already he's a king who's flawed, who makes bad choices, who, like his father, has blood on his hands. Already in the first two chapters, we've seen we need a better king than this. And the great news is, of course, that we do have a better king than this. We do have a king who did finish well, who went all the way to the cross once for all. We do have a king who who pushed aside self-promotion and who embraced self-sacrifice, who made himself nothing for us. We do have a king who gets the job done, but, but does so in complete and obvious dependence on his Father in heaven. We do have a king who never gave in to temptation to do things his own way. These chapters sort of stretch out, sketch out for us what the king will be like in shadow form, in outline. These chapters are not shallow. They show us what we're like. They show us what life is like, what death is like. They show us what kind of king we really need in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks and praise that the Bible speaks into our world. Will we finish well? Are we self-promoting? Are we getting the job done? Are we pragmatic rather than godly? Father, teach us, we pray, Help us to see in the Lord Jesus, our true and great King, the one who is perfect and right. Help us to find in him forgiveness and wholeness and a future. Help us to be godly servants in his kingdom, we pray. Amen.